the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we've got a very interesting subject. We're going to learn about ROVs and all kinds of underwater tools to help us get down there, see what's going on on the seafloor and do inspections, do all kinds of very interesting and cool stuff. We've got an awesome guest from Reach Subsea, and that's Jeremiah Gelbreth. Jeremiah, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks. We chatted a little bit before we got started, but where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Alabama today. Normally, I work in Houston, but with the stay-at-home order, I'm working from my house in Alabama. Yeah, I'm working from home too, as many people are. And it took a little while. We had several weeks there where everybody pretty much vanished on me for these interviews, which is understandable. It was straight pandemonium, but now everybody's kind of settling in to work from home and things are kind of coming back to normal, at least for my day-to-day job. How about you? How are things working from you at working from home? Yeah, I think we're slowly getting back to normal. Some of our international projects are still in flux a bit, but our local activities, I think, are things are starting to resume. Yeah, good, good, good. Well, before we get too far into it, of course, I want to make a shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. And actually, Tidewater is who put me in contact with you, right, Jeremiah? Yeah, that's correct. I worked with Tidewater for several years before joining Reach Subsea. Awesome. 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 Well, how about we just start with a little bit more about yourself and kind of how you got where you are in the industry today. Yeah, thanks. I started in the industry actually as a diver, underwater welding and other diver activities. Prior to that, I had studied electronics in college. You know, went offshore as a diver and after a few years, I saw an ROV on one of the we're working on and transitioned pretty quickly into that industry, which has been exciting and, and a good space. I joined Canyon Offshore in the early 2000s and worked there for many years. Then Subsea 7 office for several years and finally Tidewater before the, the kind of subsea recession, if you will. And then after Tidewater divested their subsea group, I joined Reach Subsea where I am today. Okay, awesome. So, so lots of time in the industry. One of my very first episodes on this podcast was Underwater Diving School there in Houston. And that's just a fascinating line of work. I mean, especially like the saturation divers. I mean, that's just insane work. Yes, it is a crazy job, exciting job, I guess. But I think, you know, as the industry moved into deeper and deeper water, it maybe wasn't the the preferred method or even the possible method on some of the really deep sites. But there's always a need for diving. There's still a lot of old infrastructure that's you know kind of designed for divers and even on new spars and, and other facilities there are certain work around the hookups and the splash zone that you know, are not, I think, the preferred and safe diver. So I think there's always a place for divers. And I was happy to spend a few years in that segment before 
you know, working with ROVs. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it attracts a lot of young people. Yeah, I could see that. It's a kind of a cowboy, cowboy type of job, you know, probably a lot of machismo in that one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, so, but with that, kind of as you've mentioned, and as I mentioned on the intro, I'm really going to learn about ROVs today, which, I mean, it's just always been a fascinating topic, something I, I wanted to cover on this podcast at some point, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. I mean, I have a, I have a drone that I like to fly around for videography and stuff like that, and that's nothing compared to what you do, but just, I don't know, it just seems cool. It just seems fun. I mean, it's got to be an interesting industry to work in. Yeah, it is a fascinating industry. I would say the, the operations and technical aspects of it are a really exciting place. You know, you're, you're solving challenges you know, at the bottom of the ocean, various depths for usually really interesting clients, and it's a collaborative type environment where there's something broken or malfunctioning and there's not a plan to fix it and you need to develop a tool or a solution for that or just you know an extra deep location and you're solving some of these so i think it is probably the coolest place maybe some people i've heard is you know we know less about the bottom of the ocean than we do about the surface of the moon so it's an exciting place for sure yeah no i've heard that stated as well and i agree with that i mean it makes a lot of sense you know so what are, maybe just from the beginning, what, what are the typical applications for an ROV? What, what are the kind of the tried and true day-to-day jobs, if you will, for what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So I think ROVs, it's key to understand ROVs play a role in offshore installations really from the beginning all the way through the life cycle and the end and in, in, in decommissioning. So you know, in the kind of installation or build construction phase, so maybe the capex phase, if you will, or we play a role of you know in laying the pipe, working you know usually on those ships or support vessels, monitoring the pipe being installed and the suction piles and all the various elements that get set on the seabed. So that would be you know, that construction phase of maybe that answer is is support of those huge loads going on the seabed, hooking them up, watching them all the way through kind of that first gas of a new installation. Then you move into kind of the life cycle of the mini decades that facility will be in production. In that cycle, you have annual inspections of pieces of the of the asset. So the pipeline might have a annual or every other year inspection and the, the jacket might be you know classed by ABS or DNV and it'll have an inspection cycle. And then on top of that you have some times uh, there might be function or something's corroding faster than it is some type of repair that needs to be done. So in the life cycle, we do inspection and some repairs. And the idea is the more inspection you do, the less repairs you should have to do. But that's up to our clients on their maintenance philosophy. Sure, yeah. So a lot of inspection, but you do use the manipulators and arms to do actual work. Cool. Yeah, that's kind of what I expected it to be. But I mean, there's probably other you know, like you said, the manipulators and the arms. I mean, you could probably add different tools, you know, onto the ROVs for specialized jobs and cameras and sensors and all kinds of stuff that probably keeps growing as technology continues to advance. Yeah, and maybe it's important to point out, you know, there's several classifications of ROVs from observation and light work class, work class. So ROVs can be something as small as a briefcase type machine that has a 
piece of umbilical that can go a few hundred feet down to a, a huge machine that's the size of a large truck. You know, maybe the launch and handling system, you might six or seven kind of tractor trailer loads of kit to set up. So it's quite a range of size of asset and cost. So there's, I think you could even talk about some of the AUVs and some of the autonomous vehicles that aren't tethered like your drone. And those would be maybe another classification of, you know, remote operated vehicle, but worked with are the tethered type and SROVs that we put on construction. But there's, you know, a range of those. And I think there's some small ones that are almost at the cost base of your drone. Oh, okay. That's pretty interesting. Okay. That'd be fun to play with. You'd probably go use it for bass fishing or something, you know, you could get yeah. it out there and find where they're living and go get them. So with all those different applications and all the widespread of, of classes, like you're mentioning there, I mean, that's got to be just an extremely tech and engineering driven industry. What kind of expertise is drawn into that field just to get those operations done? Yeah, I think in the early portion of my career, anyway, there was people coming from from all over, wherever they could be recruited for a busy time, fast growing. Over time, IMCA and other bodies have kind of helped us process the competency schemes better. And now we we try to find people with a technical base, usually hydraulic or electronic background that we can build and teach equipment specific or equipment specific training to. So today, you know, it's, it's a wide mix of people. Most of the last decade have come from some type of mechanical, electronic, or hydraulic background that then we kind of augment with extra or equipment-specific training. Now we have a competency program in the industry that's kind of has a, a similar or at least meets the milestones of, you know, so many hours of flying the ROV and so many tasks, uh, repairing the machine and up over time so that when you know people move from companies we kind of know from you know how well trained or how good of a pilot they might be okay yeah i was was thinking you know is there licensing and credentials that have to go into you know that have to come into play for the operators that are are steering and flying these vessels as you said i mean or you know is it if you can you get into the role and and you just get the training and you kind of it's just self-managed by that by that company or that operator yeah it's kind of moving every year a little more towards a licensed position i think academic institutions are starting to train uh, there's some picking up some specific ROE classes but today i think it's really you can enter the industry if you have a technical background some other type of you know licensing or certificates and then the, that company will train you and get you into a competency scheme that's probably industry-recognized scheme. You know, in a few years, there could be, you know, it could be required to have kind of a license enter. And that's probably the right, considering the, the nature of the job when you're interfacing with our clients kind of sub You know, I think it is important that everyone's trained to a specific standard. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that goes for most most operations and jobs for, you know, for safety and continuity mm-hmm. between, I would assume you're not just always working by yourself or just as just reach sub C, right? Would you 
have to collaborate with other ROV operators or other entities to get these different jobs done? Yeah, for sure. I mean, REACH is a contractor that is on, you know, a certain incident or repair campaign. And then we will contract ROV operators sometimes if we are don't have ROVs in our fleet available or we will charter in vessels for vessels we currently have or you know utilize fully so there's a definitely a lot of collaboration between you know all the service providers and there's lots of services on the vessel or on the work site that have to be there so you might have one company doing your survey and your positioning kind of where the ROVs is on the planet your x and y's where the ship is and also where the ROV is in, you know, on the seabed. And you might have another company you know, doing the ROV service and you could have a third company doing things on the back deck and you might have a couple client provided companies there with specific equipment around their well or their subsea hardware. So there could be, you know, five, six, seven different vendors on the ship at any time and a lot of collaboration happening between all the parties. Yeah, absolutely. I, that makes a lot of sense. As I'm thinking this, maybe this is a dumb question, but do you use GPS location for your ROVs underwater or do you use some kind of some other location and tracking technique when you're talking underwater like that? That's a great question. So yes, on the ship, it is like a GPS type system using satellites to know where the ship is on the planet. You can imagine that that doesn't work under the water with, the, you know, that that signal isn't be able to be perceived by the ROV. So there's a second system that's integrated to that system that uses acoustic sound and a beacon on the ROV. And we can tell, you know, accurately where the ROV is on the planet, but where it is in relation to the ship. And since we know where the ship is, now we know where the ROV is on the planet. So it's a specialized service. We usually call survey full of companies here in Houston. We have Fugro and UTech and probably a few others. And a lot of companies also do that internal service to their company. So, but it is a specific skill set to know where the ROV is. And, you know, by knowing where they are, I know where the pipeline or whatever, you know, piece of equipment you're working on is on the planet. And you will get an X and Y coordinate just like you do on your Awesome. What about, do they have automated controls? Kind of like going back to my, you know, my drone example, or, or are they pretty much always a hundred percent manually flown in the water? Yeah, it's a good question. Over the years, there's more and more automation being in, into the control systems. I think probably still lags your drone automation, but it's coming. There's some, you know, safety concerns around having large machine doing something on a well that you might be too automated or might be, you know, insert risk where there doesn't need to be risk. So maybe some slow there, there may be, I think some just the marine environment and the, you know, the ability to communicate with the machine probably is creating some you know, technology barriers for that level of automation. But we have a lot of automation already, especially on the new machines we have, for example, you know, auto so the pilot can, can keep the machine will kind of hover at a certain altitude, auto heading. But you have to remember that we're in a, you know, like your drone in the wind, you're in a current. So the machine is always be kind of being pushed somewhere. And we have now we have if you're a certain distance from the seabed, we use some sensors that detect the seabed and can kind of hold position and relative to the seabed. 
So, you know, as sensors improve and technology improves and integration into the control system of the ROVs, I think we'll see more and more automation over the years. But there is, you know, I'm probably jealous of the automation in the drones that we have compared to what we sure <laughs> on our machines. Yeah, I could see that. The fact that I can spend a thousand dollars at shoot Best Buy, I can, you know, I can buy a almost fully autonomous, fully automated drone with 4K camera on the front of it and pretty much just be ready to fly right out of the box. Just, you know, That's right. ready to go. It's it's pretty crazy. You have collision yeah. and lots of cool sensors and features. And and that's where some some of that, you know, your drone has some sensors that, that we may not be applicable to the marine environment. And the comms, too, being able to, you know, communicate with your controller from that distance, you know, we have to be tethered. And so there's there's some barriers to technology that these ROV manufacturers are continually working to overcome their greater barriers than we would have kind of air environment, surface environment. Yeah, no, I can see that. Offshore is just, it's just a, such a challenging environment, whether it's the currents or the dramatic weather changes. I mean, it's a tough, tough place to operate. With that in mind, like we've kind of talked about some of the general, you know, typical, I'll say typical application case uses for ROVs, inspections, you know, site evaluations, installation work. And I think a lot of people would think about that, but maybe what are some of the limitations on ROVs for the technology we have today? Yeah, I think the limitations are largely around those automations we were previously discussing. So our ah, okay. our clients are always looking for, especially in in the kind of cycle, business cycle we've been in, looking for efficiencies and asking us to you know, find ways to do a safe job, but to do it cheaper and quicker. And one key element to that is the, the vessel, the ship that we're on, is the largest cost of getting out there to do a job. So there's a lot of technology evolving around autonomous, completely autonomous vehicles that aren't tethered to a ship or don't need a ship or maybe resident ROVs that live on the seabed on the well location and can be piloted from the, the rig. So kind of the ship to carry the ROV in and out. Doesn't work if you have a job that needs a crane or an, an item carried out and installed, but it might work well for inspection requirements. So that's a technology that's I think our clients are asking for, and all the technology folks in our space are working hard to solve. Several companies experimenting and are doing trials, I should say, with some of these UV type technologies. So that's an exciting new area. We might see ROV pilots working from an office building in the next few years, and we might see, you know, maybe these machines deployed or living on the seabed or or being some other unique way that we haven't thought of yet. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to overly simplify <laughs> another poor example to overly simplify drones, but it, it's almost like that Roomba vacuum that lives in your living room and it just lives on the seafloor like your drone and you, you call it when you want to and it off it goes to work, you know? Very true. No, I, I think <laughs> kind of the goal in the inspection is to have this drone, if you will, that's smart, that knows what a pipeline is and knows what it needs to see or where kind of video locations need to be collected. And it moves not unlike your Roomba, probably. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. When a customer comes to reach, reach subsea or, or any ROV contractor, what are the factors that they need to, to look at and to determine 
you know, what is the best solution for that job? I think if you're looking at kind of diver technology, traditional ROV solutions, and this new AUV or newer emerging technologies, I think I think it comes down to safety is the major consideration. And then secondly, trying to find efficient new technologies or new methods to improve cost efficiencies, schedule efficiencies. So it's that's a really tough question to give a simple answer to. Most of different clients with different decision kind of criteria. So an example, we have some clients really don't want to do diving only if there's no other way. Cost really isn't part of that decision. And that makes it kind of simple. You need to focus on a on-diver solution to the problem. And then we have other, other clients who are quite happy to, as long as the diving can be done and we all agree that it can be done safely, then we can do efficient. We can do it with divers and, or maybe mixed divers on some portions and ROVs on the other portions. You know, so I think, I think the question is a little bit client specific and maybe it's always ends up being a merged solution. So it's not prohibiting, you know, using divers, ROVs, and maybe even AUVs on one, if that's what it takes to get it done. It's just efficient way to accomplish it safely. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I understand that. And now I think you touched on it earlier. Did you say AUV? Yeah. So the ROVs without that aren't tethered to the ship or okay. tethered, we call autonomous vehicles. And I think a little bit of that is around, you know, like you speak through your drone, through Wi-Fi. We, we can't do that in the water distance very efficiently. So the AUVs or autonomous vehicles are they communicate a little bit, but mostly they're doing whatever their activity is subsea, they're doing it from pre-programming or some kind of smart software. So that's, we call them autonomous vehicles. And there's a few, I mean, there's a kind of the style that cruises above the seabed, take geophysical type data been around for a long time, but the kind of pre-axis AUV that looks more like traditional ROV I think that that space is I'm referring to kind of new new technology or new space our clients are asking for more. That's three axis traditional looking ROV that is autonomous is I think there will be more see breakthroughs and, and new opportunities in that space. Okay. Where do sub actual submarines come into play? I mean, if we go back to think it's many years ago now, but if anybody that's watched the Titanic and they have the scene where they're they're in that tiny high pressure submarine or you know the discovery channel from back in the day are those used at all anymore or is it all done through ROVs exclusively i don't know if i can say categorically in the you know oil and gas space that they are not used i can say probably categorically in the gulf of mexico they are not used no space there may be a few people somewhere in the world using them but they really have because there's still a man in the you know, in the, the machine that's going, you know, to the, the seabed, I think there's still perceived, you know, high risk to personal safety. So that, and just efficiency, I'm, I'm not sure it's that you could do maybe work more efficiently or, or better by, by kind of being right there in this machine. But I think proven over time and in the end, you know, with these you know, high definition cameras and, you know, fancy manipulation, I think ROV operators can, efficiently from the, you know, 
vessel in the control room. Those manned submarines, they still exist in the U.S. military and other militaries around the world. Things were quite used quite often and definitely in the scientific and kind of the tree industry, which we see time to time. They're obviously used there. I think that's a lot more entertaining than, you know, some guys in a control room on the ship controlling the machine as a, versus kind of having a human ride to the, the seabed seems novel and exciting. But I think in the kind of industrial space we're in, continually try to remove or mitigate all risk. That's not something that we're, any of my clients are very excited about. That makes a lot of sense when you break it down that way. You know, I just, you know, that's what I, I think that's what the general public would think of when they're thinking about underwater work. I mean, we, I think most people have like that, that mental picture of an underwater diver. You've got stereotypical, you know, ROV kind of deep sea sub picture and, and they do, they all come back to movies and entertainment and stuff. And that's, it's very rarely fully applicable to the industrial world, much like you said, much like you said. So I agree. I agree completely. We've learned a lot about ROVs and different application uses and, you know, how those fit into the sector. There's a wide spectrum of use cases, but let's learn a little bit about reach subsea specifically. How do you guys, you know, directly fit into the industry and maybe what, what do you guys feel sets you apart from some other operators? Yeah, that's thanks for that question. Reach Reach is a small to mid-size ROV contracting company. We are headquartered in Haugesund, Norway, and I I joined Reach to help them grow their business in this hemisphere. But we we are a bunch of guys really specialized in subsea problem solving. Enjoy what we do. That's the key. I think the key thing. We're we're not conglomerate of businessmen, uh, but we are subsea, you know, passionate subsea guys who really like to solve these problems. What sets us apart, maybe, is some of the technologies we we focus on that can provide tangible, you know, value to our clients, increase the quality, and decrease the risk and improve efficiency. So we have a few around survey. It's really flying over the pipeline or seabed faster, much, much faster and collecting much more data. So we have a machine, we call it SROV, building a second one. It's really specific to just a survey. So it's about, uh, some around percent saving over the traditional kind of ROV survey and space between the torpedo type AUV and the traditional ROV. There's a space there where we've been quite successful in Europe and some in the Americas getting these long route surveys and really good seabed and pipeline data at a you know, that faster pace, which reduces time and cost. So that's probably our big advantage is that technology on the kind of size and motivation of our team. And we have transitioned pretty well into the offshore wind space in, in Europe. We do Somewhere around 30% of our activity is in the wind offshore sector. It's a little bit in the installation, a lot in the kind of life of field inspection maintenance and a few repairs. And we're working hard or I'm working hard to kind of expand that knowledge of my team and colleagues in Norway to what the Northeast U.S. is doing in offshore wind. So happy to, we have finally won a seabed inspection project there. Hopefully we'll start later this year. But that's an exciting space for me to be able to, you know, stay in the subsea space I've been in my entire career. And I'm excited 
and love to do and kind of transition that knowledge to some elements of the an offshore wind industry. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. I We just had one of my recent shows was just that, was um, all about offshore wind and, and how that is a truly viable energy source and, and a lot of positive feedback there. So glad you guys are getting into that that industry as well, kind of diversifying what you guys do. So good to hear. Are there other industries, uh, offshore you know, industries and services that you guys touch at all besides oil and gas and and maybe offshore wind? A little bit. We've done some archaeology type projects with this SROV I was speaking of, collecting this really detailed seabed data. Works well on that and there. But, you know, mostly I think we are in the energy, ocean energy sector by the nature of being, you know, having commitments on large ships and machines. So, no, there's not a lot of other spaces we're in outside of that. I think we would love to do more archaeology type stuff. There's a documentary out in a bit about a, the Black Sea and some old shipwrecks that we found there through a project we are lucky enough to be on there with Swedish companies that funded this project. But outside of those few archaeology projects, I think we are, you know, 70% oil and gas and 30% offshore wind. Okay, that's cool. Well, that is interesting. And it's got to be a cool change of pace and some, you know, if you, you guys are a group of of experts trying to solve offshore problems, that's going to be a fun, a fun challenge to tackle and get to get to put your hands on. So for sure, really interesting. What do you tell people when they're coming into an industry, whether it's a new customer or or maybe some new team member on your team for Reach Subsea? Any standout info that that people need to know getting into this? Yeah, I get asked that often. Uh, lots of young people are, you know, maybe idealized working on ships or traveling or whatever, or maybe working with ROVs. But, you know, I think the key is to get a technical base if you want to enter the offshore ROV space. That's the really only way you need to go and get some, some education there if you don't already have it. You know, of course, you can, you know, lots of engineering positions and subsea engineering positions that I think, you know, translate well. We've had engineers that work both onshore and offshore, very successful. But the real uh, maybe message I, I like to communicate well with people interested is just the nature of being away from home and kind of being on call. And you know, it might be a little bit glamorous the first few times, but it might get old. You know, hate to ruin your weekends, but that's kind of the nature of our business when our clients need problem solved. So I encourage people to, you know, before they invest too heavily in entering the industry, you know, make sure they're you know, their family is in agreement that this is a great career choice and they're, you know, have an idea what the expectations are for and, and, you know, what might not always have great communications or the internet might be down when you're offshore. So there's definitely a different quality of life when you're working on a ship. And I encourage people to investigate that uh, before they invest too much of their time in joining. I've seen it too many times. People join and decide it's not for them on a second or third trip. I haven't been offshore, but I have spent the last probably six years of my life traveling for work. And I think West Texas can feel like you're in an island sometimes with the mm. poor cell signal and poor connections and just everything out there. That is, I agree, that is a very good point for anybody. We've had some other guests that had very similar points as well. I mean, it's not just a job, it's it's a lifestyle, it's a career 
you really got to live it, get the best out of it for sure. It's probably key to point out as well. It's a cyclical industry we're in, you know, yeah. service company kind of within a commodity kind of place where, you know, there's new pressures, of other energy sources in the last decade. So you know, I think people that join or, or even in the industry need to be kind of robust in their planning and know that, you know, you're not going to make hay every month and, you know, there's going to be up times, up cycles and down cycles. And it's, that's not for everyone just from financial stability. I agree completely. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very good points. Just anybody getting into the industry to keep those in mind. So along that line, do you have myths or misunderstandings that you have to compete with day to day? That's, you know, Probably what we discussed uh, a bit back about the types of ROVs and man subs. You'd be surprised how often I get asked uh, about the guys going down in the sub and how long they can stay down. So I have to explain that ROVs that we operate anyway, they don't have humans in them and they're going to depths, you know, much deeper than humans can withstand. Yeah, that's probably the most common, you know, general person discussing, asking what I do is just trying to explain. I think... Some of the Titanic movies and some of the news coverage around the Macondo event, they educated the public a lot more on what we do offshore and what ROVs do. But you'd be surprised how often you still explain to people that humans don't, you know, ride down to the bottom of the ocean with our ROVs. And the other one is just, uh, I think, internally with our, our guys, you know, just continually educating them about the cycle of the industry. And, you know, it's very cyclical and it's been a tough several years. So, you know, there's maybe a bit of, you know, disconnect between our, our offshore guys and what's going on in the office and how we are, are trying to adapt to survive or not you know, ruining people's weekends or trying to mobilize boats and cancel the projects. It's it's just kind of the, the world we find ourselves in, just trying to respond to our clients and running running really kind of lean teams. And that I think the repercussion of that is maybe less planned activity or more instability in our, our plan. So, you know, internally, I'm trying to always explain to all of our guys and all of our vendors that, you know, there's no, it's not planned chaos. It's kind of the nature of the cycle that we're in when we are needing to be more responsive to our clients and do that with kind of less resource. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those are very, very understandable points for many anybody in the industry today. It might be hard to see that from outside the industry or to really hear the weight of what you're saying. But yeah, I, I agree with you very much so there. So we've learned a lot about ROVs, different application application cases, different you know, a little bit of limitations and maybe some of the technology that's on the horizon. Learned about Reach Sub C and, and kind of what makes you guys tick and sets you apart, which is all fantastic information. Is there anything that we haven't touched on, Jeremiah, that you just kind of want to get out to everybody and really get the get the message out? I really appreciate the time to answer the the questions around, you know, a topic I'm passionate about. So so thanks a lot for that. And thanks for mentioning Reach. You know, we're working hard to stay alive, stay relevant to our clients. I'm just you know, proud that I got in the industry and I'm proud I'm still in it. And, you know, I think it's been, I'm lucky to have gotten in when, when it was really busy, but I think it's just been an exciting, exciting space to spend most of my career. And I hope, you know, as we 
world changes. I hope we can evolve and do more in offshore wind and other renewable type type places and stay, you know, keep all of our ships and our people busy and kind of move with the times. So that's my goal is to move our company and our teams and our people and develop new skills for, you know, other ways we can use our, our assets and our technologies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want much the same, much the same. So thank you for your time. Thanks for talking with me and sharing some some of your internet with me uh, through this sort of remote connection, you know, it's a hot commodity right now. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope, hope all the listeners out there, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I hope you got something that you can take back to your operations, some different perspectives to think about, whether you're new in the industry or a seasoned veteran, certainly some, some great people over at Reach Subsea if you need some help on that front. And we will see you on another episode. If you enjoyed the show, I, I'd ask, please go to wherever you consume this media, leave a comment, leave a review. All of that either helps us make the show better or helps us reach out to a wider audience and helps us move things forward. So again, thank you very much, Jeremiah. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Andy. And we will see you guys on the next one. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on, but we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.